Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, the antagonistic coevolution that characterizes host-parasite relationships is one of the most fascinating interactions in genetics. And in this episode, we're going to learn about some new discoveries in a well-studied host-parasite model system, as we talk to Dr. Gilberto Bento, lead author of the recent Heredity paper, An Alternative Route of Bacterial Infection Associated with a Novel Resistance Locus in the Daphnia Pistoria Host-Parasite System. This is a fascinating study, with some wide-reaching lessons, and, as an added bonus, we also talk a bit about life after academia, as, like myself, Gilberto decided to leave the lab to pursue an alternative career in science. So, welcome to the Heredity Podcast. It would be great if you could just introduce yourself. Hi, um, so my name is Gilberto Bento. I'm originally from Portugal. I was a researcher for most of my adult life until two years ago, and I was a postdoc at the University of Basel working on uh, the evolution of host pathogen interactions. And since the past two years, I've been working as a consultant for the pharma industry here in Basel, but I still collaborate occasionally with the lab of Dieter Ebert at the University of Basel. Ah, fantastic. So I guess this work is really interesting in that it focuses on the sort of interaction between Daphnia crustaceans and one of their bacterial pathogens. And to be honest, I hadn't heard of the system before I read this paper. So I wonder if you could just describe it for us. I mean, it's it's actually a very cool system. I mean, Daphnia is used as a system for a variety of uh, of different research fields. I mean, obviously for the study of host pathogen interactions, but also for ecotoxicology, for the study of phenotypic plasticity. I mean, they they are very interesting. Uh, animals. I mean, there's a huge diversity within the genus Daphnia. There are many species. The species with which we work specifically is Daphnia magna, which is the largest of them all, like at a spectacular two millimeters or three millimeters <laughs> When they are, so they are visible at, uh, at naked eye, pretty much that's, that's the thing. So Daphnia usually lives in any kind of uh, freshwater ponds and lakes, not streams. And the reason why it's used as a model for the study of genetics, first is because it's, I mean, like every other model, because it's very easy to keep in the laboratory. And second, because it has this very interesting characteristic, which is, it reproduces both sexually and asexually. So because it reproduces asexually, it's very easy to keep for years a genetic line in the laboratory. But then you have the sexual cycle, so you can actually do genetics. You can do crossings and you can study genetics. So that makes it a very handy system to work in genetics. And also, specifically for the study of those pathogen interactions, I mean, Daphnia is a, is a filter feeder. So they, they do have quite a few pathogens. And I guess that was the reason why years ago, my colleagues in Dieter particularly, and people with who we worked with at the time, uh, started using Daphne for this, um, for this research. No, perfect. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening will be very familiar with the uh, sexual, asexual variation. It's a textbook example in a lot of biology courses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the sort of particular bacterial pathogen that you're talking about um, and why this was so interesting for you to study. I mean, the thing that I find more interesting about the system is the infection is a very complex phenotype. It's a very interesting phenotype. It's extremely important in terms of uh, understanding evolution, understanding the, the maintenance of diversity in populations, but it's very complex. So it, to study the genetics, it's often hard to pinpoint 
genes to pinpoint genetic regions. The thing is that previous work done with Daphne managed to break down the infection process into its basic components. So host entry, attachment to the host gut, penetration into the host body cavity, and then the cycle of growth within the host, and finally host death. So by breaking up the infection process into these components, then we can focus on each one of them, and then it becomes much more manageable to try to understand what is the genetics behind each one of these. So the work that was done has shown that the crucial uh, step for the interaction between host and pathogen is actually the attachment. Mm. So infective spores... They are brought by, by the Daphne itself. They bring it to themselves. They're brought in, into the gut. They attach to the foregut of the host. Then you have uh, infection. It was almost 100% success rate. On the other hand, if you don't have attachment, you don't have infection. So it was a, a very simple and nice way to study the host pathogen interaction. Okay, fantastic. Uh, it, it does sound like a really interesting system. And I wonder, you've mentioned a couple of times kind of about the different stages and trying to work out the genetics of it. So what specifically was your aim in this study? So the interesting thing about this study is that, as I said before, because we have lots of diversity, both from the host side and the pathogen side in the laboratory. And the previous pathogen genotypes that we have studied, we would all attach to the foregut. And while doing that, we reached the conclusion that there was matching allele model, right? So meaning that you have specific uh, Daphnia genotypes are going to be susceptible to some specific pastoral genotype, but resistant to others. This is very interesting because, I mean, this is what is predicted by the, the Red Queen theory. I guess many of the people are going to hear this. They, they know the Red Queen theory, but I can quickly explain. Mm. It's actually a metaphor from, from Alice in Wonderland, right? <laughs> that, that you have to run all you can to stay in the same place. So the idea is that in order to maintain genetic diversity, you need sex. But how do you maintain sexual reproduction? Because the theory would say that you should lose sexual reproduction because you're less fit than asexual organisms. So the existence of pathogens and the host pathogen coevolution would then maintain sexual reproduction because you need diversity in the population. Because when some genotype is very rare, it will be protected because the most common genotype of the pathogen won't be able to infect it. So it will grow in frequency in the population, but at that point, the pathogen genotype that is able to infect this one will also grow. So then you have these cycles of the different frequencies. But for that to happen, you need to have these uh, alleles that match. So the resistance allele of the host needs to match to the infectivity uh, allele of the, of the pathogen. And as I said, because infection is a very complicated process, this was always very difficult to show examples of this, but because we managed to pinpoint this very simple step of attachment, we managed to demonstrate this before. The thing with this new genotype that we studied in this paper in Heredity is that these guys don't attach to the foregut. They attach to the hindgut. Mm. So our question is, okay, what is happening here? What is required for this new route of infection to occur? And what are the implications that that may have for the evolution of, the, of this interaction between Daphne and Pastoria? 
Oh, fascinating. Um, so it's really interesting there, and you're talking about sort of these different strains of this bacteria kind of attaching to different parts of the gut. And I guess your study can kind of be broken down methods-wise into two separate sections. And in the first bit, you kind of checked that these bacteria were attaching how you thought they were. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about the attachment and infection tests that you used and what these told you. I mean, this is another of the things of beauty about the Daphne Pastorius system is because these tests are actually quite simple. What you do, you use a, a fluorescent dye to mark the spores, and then you expose the Daphne to the spores. And after a couple of hours, you just go to the to a fluorescence microscope and you see if you have uh, fluorescent spores attached to the gut of the Daphne or not. So the, the attachment test was a test first to confirm where they were attaching. So they were not attaching to the foregut like the other genotypes of Astoria. They were attaching to the hindgut. And second, to see what is the genetic diversity in terms of resistance of Daphnia genotypes to this genotype of the pathogen. So which were the resistant to attachment, which were the susceptible to, to attachment. The second thing we wanted to know is if this direct relationship between attachment and infection that you see in the, in the foregut attaching genotypes was maintained with this one. So that's why we again made the infection tests. And for the infection tests, what you do is you essentially, again, you expose the animals to the pathogen. After a few weeks, essentially, you should start seeing the, the infection phenotype. And it's a very clear phenotype. I mean, there's a gigantism, so they grow another millimeter <laughs> or so. Or two. It's visible. It's actually visible. I'm naked eye. And they are castrated. They lose the ability to produce eggs. So the egg pouch is completely empty. They get this uh, darkish color, so they're not transparent anymore. So it's very easy to see the, the infection. No, that, that does sound very clear. And there are some nice images in your paper of those fluorescent dyes as well. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I mean those images are really to show how, how clear the phenotype is. And the interesting result here was that, yes, the probability of infection is very high if you attach, but you have variability. So you have some Daphnia genotypes where although there is attachment, the rate of infection is lower and some others that it's higher. So that means that there is some other player besides attachment working here. And that, I mean, we don't know for a fact right now what it is. It could be just a stochastic effect because you have to see that the spore now, instead of attaching to the foregut, has to travel through the entire gut of the individual to reach the hindgut. So maybe that, that makes the attachment process less effective. Or then there is some kind of post-attachment or post-penetration into the body cavity, a resistance mechanism from the host that is working there. That, that we still don't know. Mm, no, it's very interesting, though. Um, there were some surprises there, but I guess it largely confirmed what you were suspecting about these different genotypes and where they attach. And obviously, this is heredity. So I want to ask about the genetics, um, because this is where I think things get really interesting. And you've kind of already touched on it a little bit. But I wonder if you could talk about the genetic work you undertook, and what kind of interactions and mechanisms you were finding here. So in terms of the methodology, we use the a classical KTL approach. That we make crossing between a resistant parent and a susceptible parent. 
and then we make the the back cross of the F1 generation, and then you have all the recombinants on the F2. And then you just check the phenotypes, and then you have the markers, and you make the association mapping to get the, this quantitative trait loci. Mm. Our previous work had shown like a, a very clear one locus that will explain 80% of the of the variation that you see. And the interesting thing about this locus is that it corresponded to what is sometimes called a supergene. So it's an area that doesn't really recombine much. Actually, there's a large portion that there was no homology between the two haplotypes. And that's where you would find this matching allele model. So if you had one of these pieces, you would be resistant. If you did not have it, you would be susceptible. The interesting thing here is that this region, this locus is still on play, but now it's on play together with another uh, non-linked locus, which mm. actually has a bigger effect. Oh, wow. And this other locus, I mean, it's completely different. It's a more normal, let's just say it like that, genetic region. You don't see this kind of spectacular structural variation that you see. But again, the two of them are working together. So somehow this supergene is still influencing the attachment to the hindgut, but then there is some other region that is it's modulating the, this resistance of, of the Daphnia to, to the Pastoria. Mm. No, that's interesting. And I guess you've kind of mentioned there about finding this sort of new genetic region that's having quite a large effect. And you also found some interesting stuff with the attachment and the infection. So I wonder if you had to sort of summarize up this paper and kind of distill it down into your key messages. What do you think your main findings are that people should be aware of? I mean, in terms specifically for the model, I think you have additional complexity in here. I mean, as I said, we have many many different genotypes, both from the host and additional genotypes from the pathogen that we have in the lab and that are being studied at the moment. And what we can see is that not everything is down to this one locus. There's this additional complexity. Second thing is that there are other players besides the attachment that are involved. Third thing is that recombination comes into play here. Because before recombination was not into play. Because again, we had this super gene where there's very little or no recombination whatsoever within it. And now we have two loci which are unlinked. So in terms of the model, I think these are the main things that we can say. In terms of the bigger picture, what we can see is that you will have these very simple genetic interactions, right? Because, for example, we did not find, we cannot rule it out because, it, I mean, it's not possible, but we did not find any evidence for epistasis between the two loci. So this is completely additive. So essentially what you have is another gene that somehow is adding to the effect of resistance or susceptibility. An interesting thing about this hindgut resistance uh, locus and which is different from the foregut locus, is that in this case, susceptibility is dominant. And that is something I find very interesting that I do not have a good explanation for it. Third thing is, is that you can have diversification of the entry points. You can see that in other examples. So you have this diversification of the entry points. So you don't have a single entry point. Although... I do have to say that if you look at in terms of uh, embryonic development, 
the gut of the Daphne is divided essentially two types of embryonic origin. So the mid-gut is of endodermic origin, but the foregut and the hindgut, they are both of ectodermic origin. So you see, they don't attach to the midgut, they don't attach to the endodermic tissue, they will only attach, as far as we can tell, to the ectodermic tissue. So that would suggest that although they are attaching to a different point, the mechanism should be... As a runner, you take time to plan your route, set your goals, choose the pace. But how much time do you spend choosing your shoes? At ASICS, we found that up to 81% of runners could be running in the wrong ones. Finding the right shoe reduces the risk of injury and can improve performance. With gait analysis in store or through our online shoe finder, ASICS has the perfect shoe for you. ASICS, Europe's number one running brand. Visit your local store or asics.tv slash shoes. Similar. That's an awful lot of points that I think will really kind of give elevated working in sort of coevolutionary genetics or parasite host interactions quite a lot to think about. But I guess I only had one last thing to ask you. I know that you've now kind of left formal academia and that's a move I made myself and it's a move that quite a lot of people make. So I wonder if you could just quickly tell us what it is that you're doing now and I guess the sort of the positive story of leaving academia and finding a new career path. So what I'm doing, as I said, I'm a consultant for, for the pharma industry. So Basel is a big hub for, for the pharma industry. And I work for an agency that essentially we do consulting for market access. So what we do is we research and produce documents that show from a science-based perspective what is the value of the medication or the product that they are trying to bring into the market. So we do all the research, the literature research re related to the disease and to the existing uh, treatments and to the medication that is, well, the clinical trials that is being used. And from that, we try to extract, okay, what is this medication trying to bring into? And I have to say that in the end, it was, uh, I, I do understand that sometimes when people are, considering to leave academia, they're a little bit scared. I mean, I, I, I went through that for sure. Likewise. But, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, th I think we, I think all of us that went through this, especially if we didn't do it like very early in our career, like was my case, uh, you, you really think hard about it. But I mean, the, the opportunities are there and you are going to be, first of all, you're not wasting your science education or your, or your science experience. You're using it for a different purpose. And if you're lucky like I am, I mean, you, you'll still be close to a laboratory where your, your contribution is appreciated whenever you, you do have some time for it. So I can still I can still kick the ball sometimes. <laughs> Which you're proving right here by being on the Heredity podcast. I, I completely agree. I think a lot of people are kind of worried when they're considering leaving academia. And I think it's great to hear stories like yours where you've left it, you found a career that you really enjoy, but you're still involved in research. It's not about kind of giving up on academia completely. It's just finding your path and your science. Exactly. I mean, it's a life decision. Academia is a lifestyle as well. It's not just a career. It's a, it's a lifestyle. But but if you feel like doing it, if people who are listening to it, if they are thinking about it, give it a try. It's not impossible to return. 
I know people who did it. So it's it's a matter of making the jump and giving it the go and, and trying it. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your research and sharing aspects of your work. I wonder just to finish up, if you could just remind us um, of your paper's title and also just tell us about any of your co-authors or anybody else who is heavily involved that you'd like to mention. I mean, the title of my paper is An Alternative Route of Bacterial Infection Associated with a Novel Resistance Locus in the Daphne Pastoria Host Parasite System. I mean, I, I would like to give a shout out to all of my co-authors. I mean, Dieter, for that he has been leading this project of the Daphne Pastoria Host Parasite System for, for many years. I, I think more than 20 years he has been working on this. It's truly his life work. I like to talk about uh, Peter. Peter is one of those guys that uh, he has two skills, which are super important, especially if you're studying genetics these days which is, is an outstanding biologist and is an outstanding informatician as well. And he has a great brain. And to David, because, I mean, he was the one in the end that initiated this by isolating and discovering this uh, pathogen uh, genotype. He was the one that found out that there were pastoria that were attaching to the hindgut and not to the foregut to start with. Oh, perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, James. Thanks to Gilberto. If you want to read his paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And if you want to keep listening to science, Genetics Unzipped recently released another great episode, this time delving into the genetics of sight. Most people probably don't remember what discos in the 70s were like, but they were just dark. <laughs> and you had this lovely sort of um, interaction where it was very noisy, it was very dark, and there were some flashing lights. I could see nothing. And trying to find somebody to dance with was, was a real torment, and I didn't know how people managed it. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, supported by the MRC, we discover how researchers are letting the light shine in, literally, by bringing discoveries about the underlying genetic faults that cause eye disease all the way through to game-changing clinical trials of gene therapy designed to save sight. Our stay-at-home roving reporter Georgia Mills has been speaking with sight loss charity campaigner and fundraiser Ken Reed about his experiences of living with the genetic eye condition retinitis pigmentosa, RP. She also chats to researchers Chloe Stanton and Rowley McGaw from the MRC Human Genetics Unit at the University of Edinburgh, who are researching the genes and mechanisms underpinning RP, and to Robin Alley at King's College London, who's running clinical trials of gene therapy for inherited eye disorders. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. An illuminating episode, I'm sure. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. We Know You Know is the new thriller from the hugely talented Erin Kelly, author of the international bestseller, He Said, She Said. Immerse yourself in We Know You Know and discover a thriller full of suspense and shocks, secrets and lies. Is it ever possible to hide from your past? So clever, the writing is perfection, says Marion Keyes, also featuring in the Richard and Judy Book Club. Out now in paperback, ebook and audio, We Know You Know is not to be missed.